On May 11, 2022, the Washington Post, one of the best-known newspapers in the world, announced that it was establishing a new bureau in Kiev. For many months, the Post has dedicated significant resources to covering the increasing tensions along Ukraine's Russian border and ultimately the ensuing Russian invasion, the paper said in a statement in May. As the war enters a prolonged phase, this bureau will allow us to maintain our intensive on-the-ground reporting and ensure that we continue to deliver the distinctive and authoritative journalism that readers around the world count on us for. That was the statement from The Post. More than nine months later, The Post's war reporting remains among the foreign media's most expansive coverage. There's 24-hour live updates on their website, a Telegram channel with more than 40,000 subscribers, and a growing database of verified on-the-ground footage. To learn more about this work and what it's like to report from Ukraine during the war, I spoke to the Washington Post bureau chief in Kiev, Isabel Hershugin. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. This week, I spoke to Washington Post Kiev bureau chief Isabel Hershugin. Now, before I get to the interview, I'll take a few seconds to remind listeners that support from Medusa's international audience is more important today than ever, now that the Russian authorities have designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. In other words, everything we do now, our investigative reports, our newsletters, our posts on social media, even our podcasts, it's all a crime now inside of Russia. Medusa will continue to report events to our readers, millions of whom are still in Russia. We will not submit to this attempted censorship. Now more than ever, your contributions sustain our work, and we need your help also in just putting out the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, getting back to today's episode, I spoke to Isabel about the creation of the Washington Post's Kiev Bureau, the sensitivities journalists navigate when interviewing sources in wartime and in war zones, And we even talked a little bit about the differences between covering Ukraine under invasion and her past as a sports reporter, writing about the ice hockey team, the Washington Capitals. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. First question was, I wanted to ask just generally, how did the Washington Post Ukraine Bureau come about? Because, you know, it was announced last May as a signal of like the Post's long-term commitment to covering uh, Russia's war in Ukraine and the people affected? Like, what's, is there, can you give me kind of like the the story of its birth? Yeah, so in January, I remember, you know, talking to my editors and us deciding then, okay, we need to have boots on the ground in Ukraine all the time. And that was around mid-January. So I was the first one in country for us who, at that point, I rented an apartment off Airbnb. You know, we were just trying to get our, PPE, bulletproof vests, all of that sort of thing organized. You know, other reporters started coming in, including from video, from photo. And so we started to have like sort of a semblance of a bureau even then. And basically for just like a month there, we were doing stories and waiting for the war to start or not start or whatever. I mean, but it was definitely kind of a proactive, defensive thing. And other media organizations were doing the same where you just started to see a ton of journalists in Kiev or even in the East or wherever anticipating the start of some sort of military action. But, you know, none of us were actually sure what exactly was going to happen. Yeah. So 
yeah, then everything did start a war on February 24th. And at that point, you know, I was with a team in the East. We were in Kharkiv at the beginning and then, you know, started doing some reporting in the South. There were teams in Western Ukraine. There were teams in Kyiv, obviously, where, you know, a lot of the story was taking place, you know, especially in the first month and a half. And it just became clear at some stage that we needed more coordination. We were kind of functioning as a bureau. I mean, at that point, there was a ton of people in country, but that this wasn't a quick thing. You know, it wasn't this three day or even three week kind of war. This was going to take some time and it was going to be an interesting story, even in the aftermath, the whole rebuilding, the political ramifications, the European and U.S. security ramifications. Uh, And so we weren't going anywhere. And I think it was around April that I had a conversation with the foreign editor, Doug Jell, about, you know, do you want to go to back to the Moscow bureau where I would essentially be working out of Latvia because our Moscow bureau wasn't in Moscow at that time? Yeah. Or, you know, would you be interested in being the bureau chief Ukraine. And I said, I would like to stay in Ukraine. At that point, you know, hadn't left Ukraine uh, the whole time. And yeah, we became official. So I don't know that a whole lot changed after that. It just really became maybe a little bit more organized and I guess formal, but it was nice to be able to tell Ukrainian officials and people and soldiers in the military that we're committed to this. We're not going anywhere. We do think the story is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to be in country all of the time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the Bureau is, I mean, I know you can't predict the future, but it sounds like the commitment will likely go beyond the active phase of the war, however long that goes. It's like a, the newspaper has decided like this is this country is like getting its own Bureau now kind of for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, because I do think uh, maybe some of the most interesting stories will come in the aftermath, whatever that is. You know, if there is a diplomatic negotiated settlement. I mean, what is that going to mean for the Ukrainian government? What is the fallout of that going to be? Because, you know, we've seen right now that the Ukrainian people are incredibly resistant to any sort of talk of that. What is the rebuilding reconstruction process going to be like? And, you know, there are going to be kind of fallouts from this globally, I think. Plus, even, you know, before, you know, war, war, Ukraine was always kind of interesting. I think there was a lot of, I mean, you had the whole Trump-Zelensky phone call in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think Ukraine has this unique ability to kind of wedge itself into the news for kind of a, you know, country that sometimes uh, without war in it, you would have forgotten about. But it it does, there are a lot of headlines that come out of here. So, I mean, right now we're pretty solely focused on the war. And I don't know how you wouldn't be. It literally invades every single aspect of life here. But I do think there is going to be a lot to write about here, even when the active phase of fighting is done. Mm -hmm. What's your sense of like American readers' interest patterns? I mean, I know if if you do like a Google word search, you'll see like a massive spike, obviously, in February and March when the invasion's like just kicking off. And then, it you know, obviously recedes and like there are little dips and, and dots and so on, although nothing compares to the initial February invasion. But like are there types of events or kinds of stories that seem to resonate best with American readers? Or like, what is it that, in your mind at least, and I know that I'm sure that as a, as a journalist, as a human being, there are stories that resonate with you. You know, personally, you see something you're like, that matters, I understand why it's important, or I just, some element of the story is important to me. But looking at it kind of 
as bureau chief and kind of thinking like what seems to like connect with with American readers because I mean I assume American readers are the the majority of who's reading this. What do you what kind of trends are you seeing? There are dips for sure. I mean, I feel like right now could have been one of them, except that there seems to be a lot of U.S. weapons support that's coming, which is maybe peaking interest a little bit. But otherwise, the fighting's kind of the same. There's a little bit of a sameness to kind of action around Bakhmut in the East. I mean, there's only so many different ways you can write that story. And I don't know that every American like necessarily cares about the fate of Bakhmut specifically. However, I do think the more you can tie in U.S. involvement You know, I remember I wrote a story about HIMARS when it first kind of showed up on the ground here, you know, the missile system that's been a game changer from the U.S. And that story did really good numbers. And I think it's because Americans were maybe curious about what their taxpayers are going to, right? Like, is this weapon making a difference? Is U.S. support really making a difference? How is it being used? So I do think like on the military weapon side, there is interest when it has like a clear U.S. tie into it. Yeah. And, you know, I think war crime stories, especially when you have these big areas that are liberated, and Izum, Ahersan, Bucha, those do generate a lot of interest. There is always a peak of, you know, wanting to know about what took place in those, you know, areas, the atrocities, things of that sort. Right. I think it gets harder when the initial you know, deoccupation period takes place. After that, those stories do tend to, I mean, every single story is powerful. I'm not saying they're not important, but it's, it gets repetitive because it is so widespread. And so I think as a journalist, that becomes a challenge of how do you write a story that you know is important and really personal and without kind of falling into the sameness of other stories that we've written because this does happen so much. Is there, I mean, I assume this exists to some in some way or another, but there must be burnout for journalists who who work in this field. In this context, it would seem like there's just so much trauma that it would overwhelm somebody. But the the burnout I'm more familiar with <laughs> working on like Russian media reporting and blogosphere stuff is a burnout of a very different nature. It's like, wow, I'm really kind of getting bored of this stuff. It's like not that there's so much trauma or human drama or whatever. It, it's a very different kind of burnout. But like. What's the? I mean, I, I know that you know this is not to take away from like the the pain and suffering of like Ukrainian civilians and soldiers that are being invaded and so on. But from the perspective of a journalist and somebody doing the reporting, what's the psychological toll? Yeah, it's significant. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I started. I think I was doing pretty well there for a while. Um, where you know, there's a level of professional detachment you try to have as a journalist, where obviously you're hearing really horrible stories and you're seeing people on their worst days and it's these like really intense emotional swings of you know witnessing the best of humanity and also the worst of humanity and both of those you know kind of play on your mind a little bit or a lot and I think what's hard now for me specifically you know approaching on the one year mark is you do get attached. I mean, it's just inevitable. I live here. I have friends here. And now, you know, the people who are suffering are not just, you know, strangers who I meet one day and open up to me, but they're, you know, oftentimes like people I deeply care about. They're my friends. And it's their dreams or plans that you're seeing kind of be affected. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. I think for me, the emotional burnout has been in trying not to get to 
you know, personally involved, obviously. And that just gets more and more difficult the more time you spend here. So, yeah, that's part of the reason why I think most media organizations, us included, they tend to have reporters come in on rotations or take like, you're supposed to be here for, in my case, like six to eight weeks, and I'm supposed to leave the country for two to three weeks. I do not have the best track record of doing that. Because honestly, like it, it's hard too, and I'm not going to compare myself to a soldier on the front line, but like in their case, they leave the front and they go back to Kiev, and life looks completely unfamiliar to them. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, you know, this is my real life, and then I will go back to the United States or something like that. And it's a weird, it's like a discomforting feeling a little bit because that you know, what was home feels now like very strange and awkward to me. And, you know, friends kind of don't know how to have like conversations with me. Like, do they talk about war? Is that too traumatic for me? Why am I so like, you know, weirded out by the sound of helicopters in the sky? You know, if I'm in DC, for example. Mm -hmm. So it is, there is emotional toll for sure, especially, you know, for reporters who have been in close calls at the front line and we do experience a lot of that. And I think, fortunately, it, it seems like now media organizations are more cognizant about getting you know, reporters more kind of mental health mm-hmm. resources, hopefully. I know that you've, you've repeatedly and very recently been embedded with Ukrainian military units when doing reporting. Is that right? Yes. yes. What's, what's involved in doing something like that? You mentioned earlier in this conversation that being able to say that the Washington Post has a Ukraine bureau is helpful to, I guess, like winning their trust or something like this. Like, what, what's like, what are the steps involved in like, you know, you, you like go to the defense ministry and you say, you know, hello, here's my credential. Here are my credentials. I would like to go to the front. Can you put me in with a unit? Like, what's, what, is that what it is? Or what do you, what do you do? Yeah. So where the bureau aspect becomes helpful is that like you start to build personal relationships with people over time. Mm-hmm. And those people become your sources. And so in my case, like in a recent embed, I had talked to a commander of a reconnaissance unit a couple months ago for a story. And, you know, now I had to do a different, more kind of personal reporting project where I needed to be able to spend time with one soldier at the front line for like three or four days, including, you know, staying overnight and things of that sort where it's a little bit harder to get access. So I asked this commander, like, hey, do you have anyone in your unit who would sort of fit this mold that we were looking for? He was like, yeah, come on by. And so that's a situation where, fortunately, I don't have to go through defense ministry or, you know, the armed forces of Ukraine. It's a personal relationship that I have with this commander where he has liked the work that we've done. You know, he has complimented us on our stories and he has given the go ahead. It's always a little bit trickier access wise when you have to go through press officers of specific brigades. There are things they will let you do, not let you do. There's just a lot more kind of oversight. And some are definitely way more open than others. And in general, I find like the access in Ukrainian military to be on the whole good, Uh, for sure. But it definitely helps when you know, you know, soldiers, especially ones who are like a company commander or a battalion commander, whatever, on a personal level and you already have that connection made and you can just go directly to them and they're not asking 
a press officer for permission, they're letting them know what they're going to do. It's kind of their initiative. And is it just kind of then informally understood that you won't report stuff that would like endanger the unit or like, I guess I would assume like in those circumstances, just kind of assumed or it's like informally discussed, you wouldn't talk about their positions or what do, what they're doing here. Whereas if you have to go through formal channels, maybe there's like a, you have to sign something saying, I won't do this, that, and the other thing. It's kind of that. Yeah. So when you have your media accreditation through the defense ministry, there there is, you know, there are rules that include like not revealing locations, things of that sort. But in general, I mean, I think on the ground, soldiers will tell you themselves, like, they don't want you to give away the exact location of, like, mm-hmm. where they sleep at night, obviously. Right. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Sure. Um, that's an also, obvious target. Also, might not be hugely interesting to the readers. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> so, like, I might not say the exact village I'm in, but yeah. I will say I am near the Kharkiv-Lugansk region borders, you know, at that, like, direction of the front line, near Spathava or whatever. And it's enough detail for a reader, I think, without endangering. It's a lot trickier, I find, you know, for photo and video because, you know, they have to take maybe tighter shots because you don't want the photo to be geolocated based on like surrounding buildings. So I think that's where you have to be a little bit more careful. I mean, on the tech side as a writer, I mean, it's easier for us, I think, with not revealing, you know, certain things. But I find, I think for the most part, journalists here are understanding of all of those kind of security reasons, you know, where we obviously push back is, you know, oh, you know, this commander mouthed off, like he didn't have authority to say that, don't print that. And that's, Mm. you know, just trying to kind of silence someone that happens much more rarely, or like they get mad about some information that leaked. And, you know, that's where we will obviously say like, no, no, this isn't how journalism works. Right. But that, I mean, you have to manage relationships, whether it's war or anything, I imagine. Where do you consume? How do you get your information about what's happening in the occupied territories that you know have not been liberated? Because obviously, Western journalists, you know, they, they can they can travel if they want and if they can get permission, I guess, to go to these liberated towns and cities and learn about what Russian occupation was like. But it's my understanding that. Most of the Western outlets, maybe all of them, they have decided, you know, that they're not going to try to be embedded with the Russian military, whether or not they'd allow it, I don't know, or, you know, the DNR, or the LNR, so-called. And so the only information available then is this deeply unreliable Russian state propaganda, Telegram Z stuff that nobody really trusts. And so there's a vacuum, right? And so I, where do you go to try to understand what's happening there? Yeah, so sometimes it is possible to reach people inside occupation. I, that was definitely the case with Kherson, for example. Mm-hmm. People had, people in free Ukraine had the ability to contact their relatives and occupied Kherson. We had interviews with the mayor of Kherson before he was taken into Russian captivity, but while he was still in Kherson. So that was in the summer, you know, mm-hmm. since I'm in you know, May, June. You know, I've talked to people in Lugansk over the phone. Obviously, you're being careful. The mayor was speaking openly on record, but... You know, with others, you're being careful. You're talking on encrypted apps. You are not using their names, sometimes not even first names, you know, certain descriptive details. You definitely, you know, want to take care. But, you know, we've had contact with people who work at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, for example, which is under Mm -hmm. Russian occupation control. So it, it is possible. A lot of news comes from 
Telegram channels where people who are inside will slip information to others. It's just when it's not your own source, you have to be careful with it because, you know, for example, we hear a lot about Melitopol in the South that's occupied right now and partisan activities there. And a lot of it's reported by the mayor who's currently in Kyiv. So I'm not saying I don't trust the mayor, but, you know, he also has his own like kind of agenda to portray events there as being one way. As a reporter, nothing's better than just being able to kind of quietly, carefully contact people there on your own and kind of get your own sort of firsthand picture. But there is information that always leaks out or videos. And as much as you can try to verify that, you do. But it is difficult. For the most part, though, we've seen that it is possible to have communication with people inside. Okay. How do you navigate the legal sensitivities surrounding speech in wartime? I mean, I think about this a lot in terms of the Western reporters that have returned to Russia. And, you know, they do these interviews with grieving mothers or wives or guys at the you know, draft office, and they ask them questions. And my reading of it is that what they're looking for them to say is like, aren't you mad about the war? Aren't you mad about going, being drafted? Like, your son's dead. Your husband's dead. Like, aren't you pissed? Who do you blame? And they're essentially, if, if that is, if I'm correct in reading that subtext, what they're asking these people to do is like potentially commit a felony because that would be, that could be construed as, as a crime in Russia. And in Ukraine, I know that there, you know, there's obviously a lot of just, it's, it's wartime there even more so. And there's a lot of sensitivities to, to speech, both in terms of the law. I mean, it is, as I understand it, a felony to justify the invasion of Ukraine, and that can be interpreted in, in various ways. And then there's also a lot of social ostracization involved in expressing your views in, in certain ways. Or, or, I mean, there was this interesting, very fascinating article by Joshua Yaffa from Izum, where he's talking about all this bad blood between neighbors during occupation. A lot of it has to do with like just how people think about things. So speech is really sensitive, obviously. Like, is this something that is really important when you're talking to people? Like, how do you navigate these sensitivities? You mentioned that when you talk to people in occupied territories, you're careful. Like, what, what, what goes into this, this care? Yeah, in that case, I'm careful for their security. Yeah. That I don't want, you know, them talking to me. You know, no quote for a story of mine is worth you know, them getting a knock on their door from the FSB, and obviously. Uh, so right. it, that's more of a security care and protecting their identity uh, for taking the risk to kind of explain to us what's really going on there. I think sometimes, for example, if soldiers want to critique the military or want to speak openly about losses or maybe frustrations with command or decisions, things of that sort. Right. I think that's a case where you probably want to try and protect their identity as well because you know that the repercussions for them are also legal. Yeah, yeah. From SBU or getting a salary pulled or something like this. You know, that's an example that came to mind. Whereas, are like, there situations I where you want to say to people like, you know, what you're telling me? Like, maybe, are you sure you want to do this? Like, do you, are you in those situations ever? I mean, sometimes, like, I think I will take the step. God, this is going to make me sound awful. But sometimes I think I will take the step where, you know, I will protect my source, even if he doesn't think he needs protecting. Now, if that's a, you know, high-level military general or something like that, and he's protecting, yeah. like, Zelensky, I'm not doing that. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? If he's speaking on the record, he's speaking on the record. 
Right. But if it's like, you know, a soldier on the ground, you know, I, I think that's a different thing. He's like not a public official, really. And so you kind of know, like, this guy is going to get into a lot of trouble for this. And then sometimes, you know, guys say, you know, soldiers say like stuff that I think is completely harmless and they still get in trouble for it. And I can't really do anything about that. But, you know, I, I think you do what you can to facilitate for people to speak openly, but also not take away credibility from it. It's not a light thing for a reporter to offer anonymity. And so it really has to be worth it, I think, for me to take the step of saying like, hey, I think it's better, you know, we don't use your last name or something like this for your own kind of security. But, you know, if it's not illegal for, you know, someone in a village in Ukraine to have like pro-Russian views. So on the other kind of side of this, like if you are in a village and someone says like, you know, I think the Ukrainians bombed this or I'm waiting for Russia to come here. Like, you know, if that person is saying that is their opinion and, you know, they are fine using their name, like, I'm fine with it too. I mean, that's what they really think. That's a real portion of the population in Ukraine. And Ukrainians have to acknowledge it as well. Obviously, it's very illegal to give coordinates of like Ukrainian military. I mean, obviously, if you say that and you're published in the Washington Post, like the SBU is probably going to be like looking very closely after you after that. And you will be under suspicion um, and you might face some whatever from your neighbors. But just having pro-Russian views is one thing. You know, actually aiding a foreign military is a yeah. completely you know, different thing. Um, right. So I think that's where the balance is. Do you miss reporting on the Washington Capitals? <laughs> um, that job is open as of today. <laughs> they as just posted today? it. No yeah, kidding. yeah, they just opened it. Are you tempted? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I did enjoy it um, uh -huh. for four years. And sometimes yeah. um, I think, like, why did I sign up for this? But no, I, the reason I wanted to switch from sports to foreign was to write stories about real people, about things I mean, hockey players are real people, but sure, <laughs> to write sure. about things, um, you know, that like really matter. And it's even when you write about news or you're a foreign reporter, that's not always the case with every piece of journalism that you do. In this case, reporting from Ukraine, it's incredibly gratifying because it does it does feel like it matters. And the amount of times like people tell me thank you, which is sometimes kind of awkward. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your work. I mean, it, that does make a lot of the other difficulties of living here um, really, really worth it. So I love the job. I, I'm really happy to, you know, be in Ukraine. I do miss my, you know, once a year trips to Vancouver when I was on the Capitals beat, but I can probably get there on my own. Right. <laughs> You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from the Washington Post bureau chief in Kiev. Isabel Hershujan, thanks for tuning in. And thank you for supporting our work at Medusa and for letting people know about it. Please put out the word. Until next week. Mm -hmm.